You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. I can't go back. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Welcome. I am so excited to invite all of you to season one, episode one of She Became Visible. And I have at least, I have two fabulous women with me so far. There's a possibility that we're going to be joined by at least two more. We'll put them on as soon as they join us. But we're going to get started because this could go on for a long time. How can you ladies sit here for two or three hours? What's your timeline? I'm only kidding, (laughs) (laughs) but at least an hour. And when you, the subject that we're going to be talking about today, we could probably sit and talk for four or five hours. Right. So, but I'm, I'm going to take advantage of having just two of my ladies here right now. And then as people join us, we'll let them also introduce themselves and, and tell them. So anyway, so we're going to get started. Um, I want you to introduce yourself And then uh, tell us about um, what we're going to be talking about today is caregiving for a special needs child and what that means, what that takes, how that changes your life, how that changes your role as a woman or or a wife or uh, whatever. We're going to be talking about that. And in introduction, um, the reason why this, I was so excited to have this be my first podcast was because... I was on a podcast last week with another mother that has a a child with disabilities. And she said one of the most frustrating things for her is having people assume that because they have a child with disabilities and you have a child with disabilities, that everything you do is the same. That And in all life, of course, we know that's not true. Um, We all have trials, no doubt. But your trial and my trial is different for a lot of different reasons. So um, just to let people know, if you're listening, um, we are going to be talking real. We're going to really talk about what it's like. And if that's something that you've lived with in the past or that's something that makes you uncomfortable or you've had an experience that is really triggering for you, then just to give you warning, we're not going to try to hide anything or or rose-colored glasses anything. We're going to say how it is. So thank you guys so much. Let me go to... Miss Wolf up there in the corner. Oh, wait, I have to, do I, no, you just start talking and you should come on. So you and your hockey people, there you go. Tell us, tell us who you are. Tell us what your situation is. And just a few minutes about, um, where your life was when your son was born and then kind of go from there. Well, I, I'm Cindy Wolf. I am mom actually of three now adult children who have multiple disabilities. Um, I became widowed when the youngest one was four and a half months old. So I've been doing this by myself for a long time. Um, And she's now 23. So um, never envisioned this life for myself before. And um, we, uh, it's taken us down some paths that were hard, but ultimately very fulfilling and life-changing as far as helping cut away the chaff of life, the the stuff that doesn't matter. Um, It really helps you focus in on just those things that are really important. Um, My oldest, um, his disabilities weren't apparent to after his father's death. Um, It triggered early onset bipolar with him. And he later also was diagnosed with some learning disabilities and with um, Asperger's. Um, however, he's got a verbal IQ of 130. He's very smart. He can tell you every moment from the band of brothers and, um, details that 
the rest of us probably missed about World War II. And um, that's just part of who he is. Then um, next is my son, the younger son, who's now 26. Uh, he has multiple disabilities. He's got microcephaly, um, which means his brain isn't growing as quickly as we expected it to. And what goes with having any kind of disorder that disrupts your brain development. He's got autism, some mild cerebral palsy, um, a whole host of other things, stomach and food allergies and everything else. Um, and then my youngest is my daughter. Um, when we had the middle child, we did genetics and genetics didn't find anything. This, of course, was like 1996 or seven. Um, not as advanced as it is now. Uh, we were told that they couldn't find anything. He was a one in a million random genetic fluke sort of, and that we should continue with our, our family plan. And we did. And then I knew shortly after my daughter was born that her brother was not a one in a million thing because she was presenting very much the same way that he did, um, getting a diagnosis of microcephaly shortly after birth and uh, having similar um, early symptoms as a, as an infant, um, which having gone through it once helped a lot because we got her into early intervention much earlier than we got him into early intervention because we knew where that was going. Um, but like I said, early into her life, then her father passed away and uh, I had to pick up all the pieces and soldier on by myself. So wow. um, what else did you want to know? Uh, so I didn't really know at birth with any of the three of them. Uh -huh. um, we found out as time went on and, and still today, you know, I, we keep discovering what our new normals are mm. and I hate new normals now. I hate that phrase because right. I just get tired of adjusting to when new things crop up and new diagnoses and new medication regimens on top of everything else that we're already doing. And sometimes it gets a little wearying. So that kind of starts me off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Um, and, and exactly what you said. Um, so how, so you're old. I don't know. if this Oldest is 28 now. Okay. So he was, how old was he when your third one uh, child was born, when your daughter was born? He was five. Okay. So then your husband yeah. passed away shortly he, after that. Yeah. And he was five and a half when his dad died. So were you yeah. employed at all before uh, having your son? Uh, I was employed through with the first one with a, a hospital system that had a wonderful child care option in the hospital. When mm -hmm. after he was born, I went back to work at six weeks and he was in the nursery right upstairs from me and I could still nurse him on my breaks and everything. Um, that was wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, when his brother was born and we started realizing the severity of his disabilities, I ended up um, it was too much to do all the appointments for early intervention and the therapies and the medical appointments and maintain my job. So at that point I stepped down and um, started a, like a childcare in my home so I could have some income coming in still. Oh. And we had about 50, 50 kids with disabilities and kids that were typically developing from our neighborhood. It was like a full inclusion daycare in our house. Wow. So um, a number of the kids that came to me after school were ones who were in like the early education preschool who right. were in class with my son. Mm -hmm. And um, they would come and hang out at our house in the afternoons after uh, special ed preschool was done for the, the day. Brilliant. That's brilliant. So, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for Eventually, that. Eventually, I say I did after my daughter was born um, with the help of some respite funding, go and get a master's degree in special ed. Wow. And then I was teaching full time. Uh, special ed for um, four years in the place that we were living at that time. And then we moved to where we live now in Pennsylvania. And I um, continued working in education, just not always in special education. Okay. So the school system, the, the fact that the school system and Tamara, you'll have to tell me where, where you're at. Um, yeah. The school system, because they, they will let children stay in the school system until they're 21, that right. gave you the ability to go and work and provide an income for your family. Up until I was diagnosed with my own disability three years ago. Okay. Because, so. you know, it, you didn't have enough. I mean, right? You just no. needed <laughs> Chronic sleep deprivation and all that stuff, yeah. you know. So no, I ended up with a form of heart failure. I'm, I'm on oxygen 
24-7 now. So when you hear um, the when you hear the phrase, um, God will never give you more than you can handle, do you just want to scream uh, and strangle somebody? See, because I know people who couldn't handle it. That's just not true. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, that's else. not what the Bible actually says. So exactly. yeah, I do want to strangle them. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's a misappropriation of scripture. So it, it is, and it's one of those things where we we don't know until we know, right? We don't know until right. we're in it. So Tamara, you don't know until you're in it. Until you're in it, Tamara, introduce yourself and tell us about your your situation. Absolutely, I am Tamara Elliman. I am in um, California. Um. My daughter is now four. I do have a one-year-old. Um, I actually, I was, I had just gotten married, uh, 2016. Um, my husband was playing college ball. Um, he got hurt, so it didn't work out. He had a career. Um, like I said, we just got married. I found that I was pregnant. Everything was normal. Um, I was working. I, uh, actually had just got a promotion at my job and in management. And, um, I was 25 weeks pregnant. And the day after that promotion, I actually ended up with a placenta abruption, um, which caused me to have to have my daughter at 25 weeks, six days. Yes. So, uh, my daughter, um, she stayed in the NICU for 98 days, um, it was very up and down. Um, I didn't know from day to day what to expect because in the NICU, they kind of have your baby in pods and they tell you once your baby is better, like your baby was in the back before because she was very sick. Um, she had breathing tubes, she had CPAP, she had, uh, the NG tube, um, and, um, they did a scan on her brain, when she was first born, she had to be resuscitated two times. Mm. I didn't learn that till later as well. But um, she had to uh, get a brain scan. So she got two of them perfectly fine. Oh. They told me the third one was just routine, just to, you know, one more time, just to make sure. And on that third one, I found out her brain was bleeding. Uh which was a result of, I guess, the abruption, the amount of oxygen she wasn't getting during that time. Right. So um, I didn't think that it would be a lasting effect because we started the, uh, I'm sorry, what is it called? When they, they, they tap your brain and pull the extra fluid out because she had hydrocephalus. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. A shunt. I'm sorry. Yeah. So we oh. added, um, they added the first part of the shunt was just the reservoir. So they would go in and take the extra fluid off her brain. And then um, by the 98 day mark around that time, they're like, you can go home. She's getting the proper weight, all of these things. And um, we go home and she's actually like trying to move around. Of course, her age is adjusted because she was born three months early. So we wasn't, we weren't expecting much but what she was doing, we were definitely impressed with um, around maybe October of that same year. She got out of the NICU in June on Father's Day, luckily Aww. for my husband. Uh, so around October, she got uh, vaccinated. Just a normal routine, six months vaccines. And she started um, doing this quickening movement with her head. And we were just like... I don't know. I looked up febrile seizures or what it could possibly be. And um, I learned that she, I, I diagnosed her as the doctors like to say, um, she had uh, infantile spasms in my eyes as a result of vaccines, but in their eyes, as a result of that was going to happen anyway, oh. because of the brain bleeding, the hydrocephalus. Oh. Okay. Um, so then she's diagnosed with the hydrocephalus. Now we have the microcephalus as well. Um, because of the lack of oxygen, lack of brain growth, all that stuff. Um, once she started having those seizures, I just slowly started watching her decline. It's just like every day, like at first she was smiling when she came home, she stopped being able to smile. Right. Um, she was trying to have a little scoop crawl thing. It was gone. And the quickenings was ha were happening in clusters of about 20, at least four times a day. So we were just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't understand. Um, we moved to Arizona and we um, took her to children's there. Mm -hmm. 
where she went through two rounds of a steroid to try to stop the infantile spasms Mm. and they did stop. Um, But the lasting effects of that was her developing the cerebral palsy, um, epilepsy. um, She's globally delayed, um, a host of things. She was having trouble keeping food down. We didn't really understand that. We just learned that's just a part of, I guess, slow. when you start to lose skill, mm. you just slowly, things kind of start shutting down. So now we're seeing a GI, we're seeing a, all kinds of specialists. Mm. Um, and throughout, I would say we're just now, now that she's turning five, March 10th, um, we're really now getting a true grip on what works for her. Mm. But throughout the years, it's just been a lot of um, yes. doctor visits, new yeah. diagnosis, um, try this medicine, let's take this one away. It's a lot of experimenting. Right. And I and I know doctors are, are doing their job. They're practicing medicine. That's what I was just going to say. That's why they call it <laughs> practicing medicine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're absolutely doing their job. And yeah. I totally understand that. But me as a mother, I have taken a stance. Yeah. And uh, my daughter's not on any drugs. Oh, wow. We're yeah. doing all natural. Oh. Uh, we're taking her to a chiropractor and um, she's actually improved. Those 20 seizures a day are down to maybe one or two a month. Wow. Um, yeah. So we, we've we kind of taken the reins because it's been a lot of decisions that were made in the beginning because right. we weren't that educated and we were young. Right. It was our first child. Right. Um, a lot of things my husband said no to, but I said yes to. And we were like, kind of, it kind of puts a strain on your marriage because yeah. you're like, maybe she's like this because you said yes. And maybe oh. she's not like this because you said no. Yes. But that was just us trying to find our way as new parents, as new, we're newlyweds. Right. So it, it put a lot of strain, but I can say today that um, she is in a much better face place naturally though. Right. Right. And that's interesting that you would say that because I, I forget what the statistic is, but I think it's something like 85% of marriages when you have children with disabilities will dissolve eventually. Uh, the strain, the contention, the it's, Absolutely. I mean, financially you're strained time, time wise you're strained. Uh, I know for my husband and I, um, the fact that my life changed completely, but his didn't. But uh, but in his defense, he also was the breadwinner. So he had to continue working so that, you know, we had a roof over our head. But that'll right. also, but because of that, he got to get up every day and leave the house. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. so it was kind of like, this isn't fair, but it was, you know, eh, it is what it is. And, and we all have uh, privileges in different areas, you know, and a lot of it depends on, on, like you say, the disabilities and how they show up as far as the amount of work or the amount of uh, physical uh, requirements of, for the caregiver. It all depends on what the disabilities are. So um, that's why I think it's so important for people to understand that your disability is not my situation and is not mine and mine is not yours. And we all can see the sunshine. We can all see the clouds. Um, and that's just part of the, the life experience of suffering or going through trials. And um, sometimes the clouds take over, but, but yeah. So, so Cynthia, you said that your child was older before he finally got a diagnosis, uh, that it the wasn't diagnosed right The oldest son was, yeah, six. Um, but the middle one, um, we didn't realize the extent of his issues with microcephaly and stuff until he was almost one year old. Okay. Um, yeah. We had um, suspicions and I, we had a family doctor who was saying, oh, well, he's six months old and his head's measuring at the four-month-old range. That's within the range of normal. And then when he was nine months old and it was measuring, his head was measuring six months, she's like, well, it's still six to nine months. It's in the range of normal. And I got increasingly uncomfortable. And then uh, it was his one-year visit. And she was going out of the office to, and I didn't find out until I went to go to the bathroom myself. She's in her little office looking at her neurology textbook, trying to figure out what to do. Oh, I was like, this is not working for us. That makes me feel um, so much better about we ended myself. Up <laughs> switching to a, a pediatrician who was very knowledgeable oh. and had neurological background. Right. And 
immediately the, the wheels got going for go to the neurologist, get a CAT scan, get referred to early intervention. Um, all those things finally started happening for him. So he was um, like 13 months old, but he got his diagnosis. Okay. Um, his sister, like I said, we knew almost at birth right. so before she right. was even five months old because of what we'd been through. Right. We knew what to expect. So that's that. Yeah. And, you know, even if nothing else comes from this podcast, if the message that you have to trust your gut instinct right. and do not rely on medical professionals um, to give you the truth. Uh, it but might be their on the truth. right ones at least. Yeah. It, 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 it has to say discounted altogether. Well, exactly. But you have, if something makes you uncomfortable, if something doesn't right. sound right, don't yes. go, Oh, well, the doctor said, because my experience right. was the same as yours. My son was born just two weeks early. All of my children were born early, except for I had one daughter who was born on her due date. And maybe that explains a lot. But anyway, no, um, but they were all, you know, early because back in the, you know, 70s and 80s, they didn't have, they didn't do ultrasounds. It was all a guess. It was all based on your remembering, you know, your cycle and stuff. Um, but, be, and because of his disability, he was born with a diaphragmatic hernia. And the same as, as you, Tamara, they had done an EEG. They had seen that there was brain damage. Um, I had a lung specialist, a pediatrician, and um, I feel like there was another, maybe it's the lung spe specialist and the pediatrician. And I would go to one doctor, I would go to the lung specialist and he would say, you know what, treat him like a regular child, take him out, you know, do, live your life. And then I would take him to the pediatrician and he would say, well, like you, Tamara, he, they would say, well, you have to deduct those two weeks out of his advancement. And I would be like, two weeks, really? I mean, I could see if he was right. three months premature, you would take the three months and deduct it from his progress, his milestones, but not two weeks, you know? And then he would say, don't take him out, bring him through the back door. Don't put him, you know, don't go out in public. And you know, so finally I got frustrated, called up the cerebral palsy association and said, um, look, something's wrong. Um, some of the things that they, they, they sent me a packet of information. I looked at all the signs to look for that your, your child might have cerebral palsy. And I was like, yep, yep, yep. And then they had a list of doctors that were specialists. The minute I took him to a cerebral palsy specialist, I walked mm -hmm. in the door and he said, he, he looked at me carrying this baby. He was about eight months old. And he said, I can tell you right now, he has cerebral palsy just by looking at him. Uh, give him to me and I'll evaluate him and tell you how severe it is. So we went out in the waiting room and then we came back in and he said he's quite severely affected. And I mean, that this, this, this is a specialist. And then, like you said, once you get the diagnosis and you get the proper title for whatever mm -hmm. the disability is, then you can get the ball rolling for what does this child need? Speech therapy, you know, this kind of thing. Right. But so you have to get more than one opinion. You have to trust your gut. You have to don't listen to your aunts and, and your neighbor. You just have to go with, I know something's wrong. I don't think that's right. Um, I had a doctor, I think it was the same pediatrician. He was having a hard time eating. And he said, um, just cut, cut a hole in the nipple and pour that formula down him if you need to. And I was, make a mask I know. And I was like, I don't think so. And he wouldn't nurse. He couldn't nurse. And then once I got the diagnosis, then I took him to a speech therapist and she said, yeah, his swallow suck reflex is off. So he's mm -hmm. like, suck, 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 trying to swallow. And then he's like <coughs> choking because coordinating like, it. Yeah. yeah. So it, it took the specialist, but I knew, I knew when you, when, I mean, I had other children, I knew that I wasn't, you can't pour anything down a baby's throat. That doesn't make sense. Um, so he, you know, it took us a long time, but he eventually was, is fed now with a G tube, but, and so Tamara, did you say your, is your child's have a G tube or just occasional, uh, Sorry, babies are fine. yeah, of course they are. Um, That's how it works. Uh, she does. She has a G tube. Um, I was a little leery about it, yeah. but she had, she gotten dehydrated maybe twice and ended up having issues with kidneys. Oh. So I had to do it. But okay. yeah, she is due to bed. Okay. Have you found, because I know Cynthia, you mentioned that respite care was, yeah. was your saving grace. Have you found Tamara that because he's, she's fed with the G tube that you're, you don't, you can't get respite care or do you have respite care? Um, they've offered it to me. Um, but I have a lot of family here and I just, 
it's I more comfortable to rely on family. Oh, that, yeah. that's a blessing to have family for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of Cynthia. That's kind of what I had too. He had, he had older brothers and sisters that, you know, once they all got old enough, they could, they could feed him and things. But what I have found is um, at least I live in Arizona and I think it's pretty much a national law that a, a G tube feeding is considered a medical procedure and mm-hmm. so a caregiver or a CNA is not allowed to do that. You have to have a nurse do that. Yes. And so that completely eliminates any idea of respite care because they're not going to hire a nurse to come into your house every two hours and feed your child. So, Well, it, yeah. fortunately, in our case with the waiver funding, um, if that was what they needed, that would be what would be approved to be funded. Really? So um, I don't know if you have waiver funding for your son or not, but, um, I haven't heard uh, of it, but I'm going to ask about, it. I did ask my, the caseworker about that. And she said, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. So that makes me think we don't, but how, what is that? What ex- I'm pretty sure it's available in Arizona too, but okay, you, you guys may be over assets. I'm not sure if you put money aside in his name. Um, which is one of the no. horrible things about the way yeah. our system is set up is right. you can't put assets aside for your child's name, except, well, now they have the ABLE Act that doesn't count against them. But if they have any kind of an income or assets over like $2,000, that they're not eligible for the programs that would help provide supports in the home and in the community. So um, we're fortunate that both the younger two here in Pennsylvania do qualify for the waiver program. Uh Um, and they both, because of their needs, have what's called the consolidated waiver, which is an unlimited um, amount to meet their needs to be able to live at home and in the community. Um, Seriously, so you don't have a restricted number of hours that you're you're being reimbursed for? It's the, it's restricted based on what we put in their quote unquote ISP, the individual service plan, oh. um, as far as what we document what their needs are, right. and we determine what services are going to be needed to meet those needs. Right. Um, sort of like an IEP, but it's for being an adult and living in your own community. Right. Um, and that gets reviewed at least every year, if not sooner, if we need to make a change or something. Um, that's also how respite services are approved. Um, and since my own disability, now we have some homemaker chore hours approved that somebody could come in and help with the housework. But um, we've also had the challenge with the last two years of COVID that there's oh. almost nobody available out there. So we have all these services approved, but nobody yes. to fill them. Oh, that's so, so and that's, that's been hard. I think that's another, um, be, I mean, people talk about the hospital situation, the nursing shortage and whatnot with COVID, but they don't understand the, the direct getting, service professional. Yeah. That's really yeah. bad. Really hit hard. Right. That, that's, and I understand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you do. I mean, of course you understand that they don't want to go into a private home and, and, uh, but it's like many people said, you know, illnesses don't stop, uh, disabilities don't stop. So right. you can stop the um, assistance, but you can't stop the um, need for the assistance. So that's what, right. so Tamara, do you have, is she in a, any kind of a state funded preschool program or parent provider uh, income? Do you have that? Well, wait, you're um, in Arizona. I do, have, so. I do have parent provider income here in California. Um, it's called IHSS. Um, they do give me a number of hours based on um, what I can do. I mean, she's only four, so right. certain things are still falling under you're obligated as a parent. Oh, but, um, oh, I love that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a free for all, but right. the older you get, the more hours you get as far as like what she should be doing versus what I should be doing. Um, so I, I am in that. Um, and she does. Uh, California has a CCS. California Children's Services. Um, They do offer therapies and um, any extra equipment she may need. They'll pay for, uh, they have their own set of doctors that you go through. Um, So yeah, she's in those two programs. I'm not, I'm not doing school. Right. Did they offer Um, you a preschool option? Yes, they did offer preschool. I'm just choosing that because um, since her vaccine thing, I just refuse to get her vaccinated. Oh, you'd have to get her vaccinated to be in the preschool program. Exactly. So not everyone knows though, that if your child's approved for the preschool program or meets those eligibility requirements that you can request her to have home-based services opposed to going to the public special ed preschool. Um, They can have a teacher come out and work one-on-one with her instead of going to the school placement. That is an option. Oh, 
good to know. Thank you. That's excellent. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. Even going on into elementary school, if you want to keep her on homebound status, you can do that. And they'll have a teacher come out to the house, but you have to go through the eligibility process with the school district and get the IS IEP in place for her. And then the IEP would determine that she's on homebound and gets those services at home instead of in school. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Well, and that would be very beneficial. Like you said, with with the COVID thing right now, that was something that we never had to deal with. Um, But now that the, you know, wearing a mask might be difficult for a child with some kind of respiratory issue or whatever, and they couldn't attend public school. So that's an option. That's fabulous information. Yeah, I think we're seeing it even more readily available with COVID for the kids who need homebound services because um, it is something that is now a concern that the the child may have immune issues and can't just be in the school with all the other kids spreading COVID. And um, I have a friend whose son has SMA and he's been at home all through this, even when the school reopened because of the concern for him getting exposed to something. And um, it seems like they're, the school is much more flexible about um, meeting those needs, not just here, but elsewhere as well. Right, right. And, and that is one thing I will say. The, um, the school system, the, the, um, the laws that were passed that included inclusion, <laughs> that demanded that children with disabilities be served as, as all neurotypical children are, is probably the greatest thing that's ever been done. It's, it's, it absolutely saved my life. And it's my understanding, tell me if, if Cynthia, you might know this, it's my understanding that um, Judith Hoyt was one of the women who got that going because you, are you familiar with Team Hoyt, the guy that ran the marathons with his son? I, I know about Team Hoyt and, and yeah. was sad to hear that recently uh, Dick passed away. The father, um, yeah. But I didn't know that she had involvement. I know that there's a lot made of about um, Pennsylvania, the 1972 case between the Ark of Pennsylvania or Park um, and the state to get the schools opened up for kids with disabilities. And that was kind of the precursor to the 1975, the IDEA that opened up the schools for everybody else. So, right. Right. um, And that happened in PA first with parks, big lawsuit against Pennsylvania. And then it went nationwide. And isn't that sad? We had a situation, uh, we moved to Arizona from Washington state and there was a school district in Washington state that had to get sued to Hmm. provide the autism care that they needed for students. It's sad that it has to go that far, but thank heavens there are people out there that are have the time, have the energy and the financing and organizational ability to do things because I am the recipient of the work that these people did, like you say, back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, my son was born in 85. And um, even at the time that he was born, um, they, the diaphragmatic hernia, they, they died. And it wasn't until I think, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was like, early eighties that they knew how to do the surgery that was required. And it just so happened that we were living close to Oregon health science university where they had a diaphragmatic hernia specialist there that could perform the surgery that was needed. So, you know, looking at this, how, how medicine has progressed is uh, sometimes absolutely amazing life-saving and sometimes maybe too much intervention, you know, was caused more harm than good. But again, you have to figure that out and and become as self-taught as you can, but that's that is fascinating to know, but yeah, him being included in the school, um, like I said, he was eligible for preschool in in when he was three. So in 1988, a bus came and picked him up, three years old, took him to school, drove him back yep. home, and so I suddenly had the time to go and be with my other children in their school. Uh, you know, do get some grocery shopping and things done during the day. His his hours were the same as my other children's hours, and. That continued until he was 21. Now he's 21, or no, now he's 36. But when he turned 21, that all came to a halt. And so now he's with me all the time. But uh, there's not a lot of uh, school-to-work programs uh, for depending on the disabilities. So he's not physically able to do any kind of uh, school-to-work program. So it was interesting that when he was a senior, and I started asking questions, like, um, so what are we going to do after this? What's out there? At, you know, and they would be kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder what will happen, you know? And so I got the, I got the cues. It's like, there's nothing you're on your own. It's kind of like the foster care program. Oh, you're 18. Bye. 
we don't have anything set up for you. So anyway, but that, but see, that was pre everything as far as COVID and all the restrictions. And so, yeah, Tamara, I, I'm, yeah, they're scare me to death. To uh, remind me though, that um, sometimes things in our lives change, especially locations based on resources that are available. Absolutely. Um, one of the big reasons we moved to Pennsylvania, even though it's my original home state, um, when it was uh, 20, 2005, when we moved here, um, the um, at the time, Pennsylvania was like ranked 16th out of all the states to in service, spending per capita on children with disabilities and the, and the state we were living in at the time, Virginia was ranked 49th. Um, wow. Pennsylvania had also just passed their law act 64 that um, forced insurance companies to cover services for children with autism as opposed to before it was all out of pocket. Um, and in fact, that following year, then Pennsylvania moved up from 16th to fourth because wow. of all that legislation that was guaranteeing services to kids with disabilities. Wow. Um, and Pennsylvania has always had a, a, a law that if your child under 18, regardless of family income, if they have a disability, they are automatically qualified for Medicaid to help cover those services. You don't have to rely on your private insurance. So there were reasons we moved here wow. and um, also researching the school district because the school district has a, a, a really wonderful transition program. And we started early, like in middle school, age 12, 13, 14, talking with them about what did they want to do when they grew up and what were the things that they would need to learn and study and do to get there. And, um, then they have a, an apartment program, like a living learning lab, starting when they were like age 16 in high school. They'd go spend a week at a time um, in this apartment with uh, two other same-sex peers. It's a four-bedroom apartment. They each have their own private bathroom. Um, there was like a sort of like a job coach, but a life coach there with them. And they were uh, planning the menu, doing the, their own grocery shopping. Um, their own cooking. Uh, we even got them to put in a bidet seat for my son because he needed that as an adaptation. Um, but so he started going to the LifeLink apartment for one week every like two months or so and very proud of, you know, riding the bus and and doing the shopping and the cooking and all of those life skills um, that he needed to learn for his adulthood. Um, and then he went into, at age 18, instead of staying in the high school, um, there's an option here. There's a cooperative program with Penn State that they go on campus then. They have a special classroom on campus, and they're taking classes with Penn State students, um, being like their buddies and mentors, and um, learning to navigate around campus and ride the public bus system to and from campus. And um, all of that stuff is really prepared, actually all three of them, right. to be as independent as possible as adults. And that, those are programs you don't find everywhere. There are a lot oh. of school districts come here to study how right. our school district does it. And so our, you know, we had a big trajectory change when we moved here um, and carefully decided because of those resources that were available here that weren't available in Virginia for the kids right. um, for transition and for adulthood and everything else. So, so it, so Pennsylvania is 14th. So they who, were, who's number I think it's one? changed now a little oh, bit, but yeah. um, other states now mandate the services for kids with autism. It's not just Pennsylvania anymore. Yeah. Um, that was like 17 years ago now. Right, so, right. What, what's the number one state? Do you know who has the best? I don't services? know currently. I kind of lost track of those statistics, yeah, but yeah. The, I know typically the new England states are pretty high on the list for what they spend per capita for children under 18 with disabilities so wow. but you um, have snow so there's that I don't know <laughs> they don't have that in Arizona. you know I like snow so yeah. it's okay it's I grew okay. up with it yeah my my daughter went through the school district got to participate with a, a support person in the school's intramural ski program she oh. got to go skiing once a week after school with a buddy and then she also on Saturdays, our Special Olympics team has a ski program. Yes. So she's doing alpine skiing with them and got to go to the state games and Special right. Olympics and skiing. And right. I mean, there's so snow other is your to be friend for having snow. Yes, so. exactly. That's exactly right. And the hockey program that we helped found. We yeah. had one in Northern Virginia and there was nothing like it here. And so we um, 
helped get one going here so that people with disabilities could enjoy ice hockey too. Now, when you say we, is that you and other moms that you were working with in the school or? or um... Um, we, as far as a team of me, another family that we had met at a hockey tournament in Chicago many years before who moved here and were also looking for a special needs ice hockey program. Um, their son was in school with, with my middle child. Um, and then, um, we, as far as our family, my oldest, I think I mentioned he's bipolar and has Asperger's. Um, he was very unstable when we lived in Virginia before we moved here. And one of the few saving graces he had was his relationship with his ice hockey coach there. Um, that just the, the getting up and going, even when he was feeling suicidal to go to hockey practice each week, just kept him going. And it was important to him to have some sort of uh, sport option here. Um, when you're a fairly high functioning, Special Olympics is not an option because they're actually an exclusive organization. You have to have an IQ below 70 oh. and he does not. Um, yeah. So finding you know, a more inclusive sporting option for him, special hockey was that, that they don't care what your diagnosis is. If you have special needs and you need support to skate or play ice hockey, then you're welcomed in the program. And um, so he was really motivated to help get this going as well. And now at 28, he's our head coach. Oh, that's So he's gone from being a player to being the head coach. He went through coaches training with me and he, he runs practices every Sunday. That's amazing. That's That's interesting. I didn't understand that. I didn't know that about special Olympics. Do you feel though, then that they are actually kind of uh, modeling towards one disability more than all disabilities then? Because I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, they're, they're, they used to be more just DD slash what we called MR before. Um, but now they're opening up more for if you have a developmental disability, they're not, they don't care which kind it is. Okay. Um, they're, they're trying to become more inclusive. They have those unified sports programs where they pair typical peers with uh, uh, athletes with disabilities, but there's still a requirement that they must have an identified developmental or intellectual disability signed off by a physician on a form to become uh, a participating athlete in Special Olympics. I wish they would do that with parking passes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You have to have a, a diagnosed disability. You can't just be old. That's not, <laughs> we found that in Arizona. It's like, are they passing these out with the AARP cards? Because what is happening? <laughs> I cannot find a place to park in Arizona. So, so Tamara, then what are, what are you thinking? Or um, she's going to be old enough to be entering the school system. Are your schools open where you're at? And are they all, you know, how, how uh, COVID-y are your schools currently where, where you're, where she would go? Um, so. I'm in the Valley. They're not as strict as LA Unified. Mm. Um, So I am paired with the regional center here um, and they're going to go over the IEP with me Mm. um, to go ahead and get her in. I've already spoken with the school. Um, They are open. They would like for her to come in person. So I'm kind of working on getting a medical this i think a medic medically necessary some type of paper okay. that says her immune system is very sensitive and it's right. better for her to be at home right. i am working on it okay. so um it's open i'm yeah. just going the way that i feel more comfortable you just want to keep her home until maybe Absolutely. see some other things come to pass yeah because you know and when you have a little girl even if she didn't have any disabilities there is a little worry with what's going to happen when they get to school. And it's especially more, I would say, prominent with me because my baby's still in diapers. Yeah, exactly. Somebody would have to change that. I don't know the frustration level. I know as a parent personally how frustrated I can get sometimes. And I have to become comfortable with all those things before I bring her into that setting because I would like for her to thrive. Right, right. And, you know, that's something too... Um, that you don't think about. I remember when my son was little and I was talking with another mother, we were over at the Easter Seals pool and um, we were swimming. And I said, you know, when I was pregnant with him, um, I was really hoping that he would be a girl because that would even out my kids. You know, I had so many boys, so many (laughs) girls. And I thought, well, we, we need to keep things even, you know? 
And she said, oh, no, 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 you don't, you're, you should be so glad he's a boy. And, you know, then she started talking about menstrual cycles and I was like, oh, crud, I never even thought about that, (laughs) you know, because he's also, you know, uh, diapered still, you know, he's in briefs at 36 and I never, you know, or I'll, I'll listen to other mothers that have children with uh, severe autism and, you know, you know what it's like just to be a woman your cycles and emotionally where you're at and hormonally where you're at. And you've got a teenage Mm -hmm. daughter that, you know, you're like, Oh, kill me now. And so, you know, I never even thought about that, but that you're exactly right. And I remember, gosh, what was the name of that book? I bet you guys have read it. Something like the, the, um, Oh, oh, I can't remember. But anyway, it was about a mother that had a daughter with down syndrome and uh, she was sexually abused and uh, it just, you know, riding a bus back and forth. And there is just more fear with a girl with disabilities than there is with a boy. It's, I mean, our you kids know. are already marginalized and exactly vulnerable to begin with as boys, but then to be female, that adds a level of concern. I totally get that. Yeah. Um, if there's any consolation, though, I know from my work as a teacher, um, you know, most school districts should have policies in place for handling exactly. the toileting needs yep, yep. so that they're, they're not vulnerable. I mean, in this yeah. day and age, especially where we live um, yep. in Pennsylvania, the, there was a big case in the news not too many years ago. Um, and that brought home that it could be boys that are being victimized as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. Anybody's vulnerable, but right. to have to know that they have that too deep or the, um, you know, some kind of check and balance system in place for how that's being managed is essential. So. Right, exactly. Well, yeah. I can say um, as far as LA Unified goes, my mother um, runs a daycare in Los Angeles and one of her new clients did express that his, her son with, uh, I don't remember what his disability is, but he's disabled and his actual, his inside some kind of way started bleeding because they would not allow him to go to the restroom. Oh, so they they put in like classroom rules that applied to everybody. And yes. So it's like certain things like that. And I just heard this recently that just further confirmed that maybe I'm not ready and she's not either because there are certain things that I need to know for sure. Right will happen i need to know right. i'm comfortable with that teacher i need to know that if she does use a bathroom maybe she goes twice in a row right. are you going to be frustrated by that are you right. going to you know pride is everything exactly i am i am a stickler about my daughter being treated as a person exactly and with pride and dignity right. like if, her, if she's drooling i need you to wipe it right right if she's wet change her if i'm uncomfortable if anything you will be uncomfortable with she is uncomfortable with. She's right. still a person. Exactly. So until I am at the place where I know that I'm in the right place as far as the school goes, as far as the teacher goes, even the person coming in my home. Right. Right. If you're not going to treat my daughter with pride, I can't. I can't. Absolutely. I can't well, and, and I think, well, uh, um, I'm sorry, Cynthia, I, I can't even begin to tell you what the people who worked at the school, um, how they helped me, how, how they um, taught me. I had a, um, we were living in a rural area and decided to move back into the suburbs. And I couldn't decide if I wanted to keep him in a tri-county program or put him in the, in the school that was, you know, elementary school right there. And someone from the district came to one of his meetings at the tri-county school and asked questions that I would not have even had the uh, knowledge to ask. And I was blown away. There, there was a, they were saying how, well, you know, we're going to do this program. It's for uh, sensory disorders and we'll brush them every day and we'll do this. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I totally just listening to these experts, you know, tell me what they're going to do. And she leaned over, she goes, why would you do that? He has cerebral palsy. He doesn't have sensory issues. You know? And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you do that? You know? And she stood up, she fought for him to be in the school program. And then there was things like she would say to me, um, cause he's little, he's little for his age and very common for cerebral palsy kids to be very thin because they're burning so many calories. And so he was always little. And so I just had been putting bibs on him. Right. And he's five years old, but he looks like he's three and I'm still putting bibs on him. And she said, you know what? 
he's in elementary school. Nobody in elementary school wears bibs. Uh, go get a bandana. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, he was my baby and I was treating him like a baby and I needed her expertise to show me, oh yeah, these are some changes that need to be done. It was amazing. And there, it was, I mean, they, they were the ones that had the physical therapist and the occupational therapist, and they would come in and say, well, he needs a new wheelchair. And, and, uh, I think we need to do this or do that. And I would, I was just like, okay. And then when he got out of the school system, I'm like, oh, now I'm on my own. I don't, how do I do this? You know, I mean, it was amazing. They were life, life changing. And like you were saying, Cynthia, we moved into a suburb. Um, we didn't check out the school district or anything like that. And come to find out we were in one of the best school districts in Oregon for, uh, services through the school district. And I would have thought Portland being the city that Portland would have an amazing school district. No. I mean, there were people leaving Portland and moving to the suburb that we were in to get the better schools. And I was like, I guess I should have checked this out, you know? And now my daughter, she has a son that has autism and man, she checks, she knows everything about every school district and they moved, they live in Texas. They moved from one city to another based on the school system. I was like, wow, that's amazing. But didn't quite move out of state though, but I don't know. This Pennsylvania I say I thing. have friends who've left Texas because of their services there. <laughs> yeah, it really it depends on where they're at and and uh, their taxes are so high. You'd think they would be like supreme, but yeah, in her school district where they moved, she's getting you know. Plus, she's an amazing Good. advocate. So, um, but yeah, that's that's the, what people. I, I mean, with autism, ABA therapy, it's so right. expensive. But that's why Pennsylvania covers that now. That's amazing. Their insurance pays for that. That's amazing that the state pays for that because autism is so prevalent. I'm sure that they looked at that and thought, can we afford one out of every 48 children to be getting services? You know? Yeah. But yeah. I was going to say, we've all kind of grown and learned so much as we go and um, use that research and that knowledge to help, you know, not only ourselves, but others. Exactly. And I was going to encourage tomorrow that um, my, my oldest had some medical issues related to some of the medications he was taking um, for his bipolar lithium is particularly challenging. Um, and he needed to have access to water and bathroom breaks at all times. So when you're concerned about like your, is it your friend or your, I can't remember who had the child that started, oh, the mothers yeah yeah they can have what's called a health plan that's separate from their iep that spells out these are the medical conditions this child has and these are the accommodations they need to be receiving and that is legally enforceable so tim was supposed to have access to the bathroom at all times and any time because we just didn't know when you know he would suddenly have to go and um that was without recrimination from a teacher and he didn't abuse it like some kids might try you know just to get out of class he only used it when he really had to go and um so there's things you learn about like having a health plan that that's separate from the IEP and other things that are your rights as a parent I think we all grow and learn and and gather these resources and it changes you know and your life you're exactly right and it changes according to what the disability is you know, my right. son is diapered. Oh, I didn't, we didn't even have to deal with, uh, well, he did have to be changed, but you know, they explained to me what was going to be, ha- and he's also non-ambulatory. So he's in a wheelchair. So I never had to worry about him running away or participating in a sport. Right. Or, no, he yeah, yeah. So I, you know, um, everybody who you deal with what you're dealing with and then uh, right. thank heavens, there's experts like you that have more general broad knowledge that can share you know, for, for people that you don't know when you, when you're entering a school system, you barely know with a, a neurotypical right. child, half the stuff that you're supposed to be doing. And so this is all just overwhelming at, at certain mm-hmm. times, but, um, thank yes, heavens absolutely. there's fabulous people out there that are sharing. And like you say, and know what they're doing and have the expertise. I feel fortunate because I kind of came into this at the point at which the internet was really taking off. Yes. Um, my friend, uh, Jenny, who was going to try to join us, but she's on the other side of the world. Oh. Um, uh, Virginia Walters. She, yeah. uh, she and I met basically online. Our kids are similar ages. <clears throat> we were in a microcephaly support group online for many years together. And I've got a 
core group of probably eight moms that I'm still really close friends with online that sometimes we've met in person, but not always. And that support has been critical. So if I have a day when I'm pulling my hair out or we've got a new diagnosis or something's going on, I just don't understand the symptoms I'm seeing. I can bounce that off of them. And um, that was really helpful support. Now it's sort of all moved off of email lists into like Facebook and Twitter and other places that people connect with other parents who have similar diagnoses. Um, But that support is out there. It's, it's really important. Yeah. And that you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, um, uh, gosh, I think we were well into the nineties when we, before we got our first computer and it was just, if you didn't, if you weren't surrounded by other people that were going through what you were going through, you were on your own. Uh, but yeah. there is so many wonderful things. As long as the as long as the support groups don't turn into trauma bonding, and they're right. they're, they're more supportive than. But sometimes you can get into some of these groups that are just um, they everybody just wants to tell you how hard their day was, and it's yeah, like yes. okay, I get it, but let's we gotta yeah. go somewhere else. But um, so that's so important, so important. And Jimmy and I blessing. ended up moderating the microcephaly list, so um, we worked really hard to keep it positive and supportive, and not just whining yeah. and keep it so that it's contributing and not exactly. taking away. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many different things. I remember my oldest son has ADD and I remember going to a support group and um, I, I was like horrified. You know, they were saying, well, you know, this is the trouble we're having and we have to protect our other children because he's so violent. And, and they were just listing all these things. And I was like, Nope, nope, this isn't for us, you know. So you have to find your you have to find your group. There there'll right. be groups that'll work for you and work groups that don't work right. for you. So uh but Facebook is a f- fabulous idea of where to at least start there. At least start there and and go from there because every mm-hmm. disability is different. And and Cynthia, I love that you um I, I want to finish up the podcast by talking for just for a moment about um losing yourself, losing your identity. Mm-hmm. You become a caregiver and mm-hmm. have you, but f- tell us just a, f- a little bit. And then Tamara, I want you to s- talk about how, you know, you're a mom to two little kids. Um, you have a one-year-old um, you've, you've got uh, probably the four-year-old takes a lot of time. Do you feel like you are just strong trying to give your, you know, one-year-old and how do you keep your identity, your needs met when you're the mother of a disabled child? Oh, wow. Um, I'm still learning, but I can say um, I feel like I need to write a book that says I don't know what I'm doing because having a child with disabilities first and then having a neurotypical child, it definitely feels like I've had to find myself twice. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my, with, uh, with Amara, my daughter, Amara Strong, Aww. with my daughter, um, it was just so much about first of all, I had to get over the guilt. I felt Aww. like it was my fault. My body failed me. Everybody has babies around me. Nobody had a baby at 25 weeks. Mm-hmm. It's all my fault. Mm-hmm. I told my husband, I didn't know I was going to make your life like this. If I put everything on myself. Mm-hmm. So I was lost because I had just self-sabotaged so much. I just was, I I remember screaming and asking God why he was torturing me. Mm. I was just screaming, like, why is this happening? I don't understand. It's my first baby. Why do I have to go through it this way? So I will say that, honestly, I've had to lean on my faith and my family members so much in order for me to find myself. People making me take time to myself. My mom saying, I will watch her go out of town, do something. You know, I stopped being a wife to my husband. I've had to relearn to be a wife because we're fighting about this and that. We moved to Arizona. His insurance was like, you know, in California, they pretty much, they cover everything. And we moved to Arizona and it's like, oh, you need to pay this percentage for the swallow study. She needs a swallow study. Oh, she needs another one. That's another thousand. It was just so much. And I didn't know about insurance and what she was entitled to there. I had to relearn everything. So I just will say my support system and my faith has truly reshaped me into being who 
I see glimpses of my old self coming back in. Yeah. I can say now, uh-huh. um, and then being a, a parent of of a, a normal. I say I hate the word normal. I but. know it's that's but yeah, it's just first thing <laughs> a child comes. with oh, that doesn't have unique needs. Right, right. Um, it's just like it's such a joy, right? And I get to say like on those flip side when I said my body didn't do it my body couldn't do it this time my body did it yeah and I can do it and I, and I can have this happy mothering experience I can right, right. and and it's and it does help that my husband is I guess more on board with a lot of things yep. um in the beginning he was just like no 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 we're not doing that to her you know and it's like it left a lot of decisions solely on me yeah that's interesting so that was, you would say that, Tamara, because I, I have another friend who has a child with autism and mm-hmm. she had to fight to get this uh, sweet thing, uh, her daughter is so cute, um, tested. And when they got the diagnosis back, um, her husband was devastated because he is also brilliant. And it was, uh, he took it personally. He took it personally that his child wasn't also brilliant, that they were going to have these difficulties. And, but she had to fight to get him to go along with her to get that testing done. And, but to have a a partner that will come around and understand and do their part, because we all do that. And nobody, you know, nobody blamed you, you blamed you. And so everybody does that. And, but I, I think the number one thing that I hear you saying is how crucial it is to have some kind of a support system. Absolutely. And, and, abs- Absolutely. and it's not even a choice, really. It's a life-saving it's necessity. Right. And I'm trying to be that to others. Oh, I yeah. I made my daughter an Instagram page and we oh. made sweatshirts and T-shirts so people can, you know, be reminded of yeah. like why we're all doing this. And so many moms have reached out to me to be able to help a lot of people. Oh, that's amazing. Even with just like, um, what type of medicine did you not do? My baby has the same diagnosis. They're saying this, any little thing. So I feel like I've been able to reinvent myself in that way as well. I can be a vessel for others because I was lost at one point. That's so beautiful. And as I find myself, I can help. I'm amazed at that. And Cynthia, uh, briefly just give a few seconds. Tell us what, because that's exactly what I see in, in the community that, that we work with is the people who have needed support the most are paying it forward better than I've ever seen. Um, I have a, uh, we have a, a client, we have a foundation that helps families purchase wheelchair accessible vehicles. And I have a, a, one of our very first clients, she's in a wheelchair, her daughter's in a wheelchair. And when all of those horrible fires were going on in Oregon, if she wouldn't mm-hmm. have had that vehicle to evacuate Baby. her home, oh, and wow. then she went back and helped other people that were in wheelchairs. It, it, it is amazing what I see the paying forward of people who have received. They received right. and now they're paying forward. It's amazing. And Cynthia, you've done the exact same thing. But yeah, tell I us how you agree. how you kept your identity. I, well, I think for me, it, it started when my husband passed away because I realized I had kind of lost myself there. Ah. And I had to go back and redefine myself as a person at what were the things that I used to do that I had stopped doing um, and had let go during the marriage right. and um, went back and re- reminded myself that I loved classical music and oh. playing the piano now and then and some of the other things that I had not done in years. And that's been helpful to periodically do even now, all these years later. Um, I just took up knitting again after I hadn't done it in 40 years and I knit the kids all things for Christmas, new hats, wool hats, and I'm getting ready to recreate a wool sweater that I, that I had when I bought from one of my travels to Iceland when I was younger. Um, I'm going to make that sweater instead of being able to go to Iceland again. But um, I just, just little things like that and um, help me um, keep in touch with who I am. And then of course, a big part of my heart has always been serving others, whether it was in the healthcare industry or as a teacher. So doing things like our ice hockey program um, is my, that, that fills my heart up to be able to help others. So that's important. And I I love what you said. I think I, what I heard were two things where I remembered who I was Mm -hmm. and then I implemented things to 
do what I remembered about myself that I loved. Yes. And I think yes. that's two of the most important things is not forgetting who you were before mm-hmm. you had children, before you even became a wife. Who was I? What were some things that I enjoyed doing? Yes. How can I implement those back into my life? Purposefully uh, and mindfully. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I love that both of you, even though your time is very scarce, scarce uh, that you can claim for yourself, that you have recognized how important it was to, um, to feed your soul so that you can serve others. And I think that's the most important thing. Thank you. Yes. you. You guys, I cannot thank you enough for your contribution. And I hope to be able to not have this be our last conversation. Um, I'm afraid you guys are stuck with me now. And, um, <laughs> and we're going to continue this because you've just been so helpful to me. And I'm, I'm really just confident that you've helped so many other people that are listening today. So thank you all so much. Thank you, Renee. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much for joining any of you listeners out there. Uh, We're so excited for this new podcast. Our goal is to help other women become visible to remember who they are, remember who they were before life got in the way and to find themselves again. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.